1: Do the unions, the are like hey,
2: why don't all you motherfuckers get in here and get yourselves around so we can start this.
0: <laughs>
2: okay, I'll be blunt. I was talking to you assholes out there around the truck. Yeah, get your butts in here so we can get this going. That goes for you lot over there too. Get your ass in here. that's
0: why
1: you're here.
2: OK, I'm not, I'm not saying a word. <laughs> that looks so cute. Looks just like a hairpiece.
1: <laughs> now all you
2: need is red nails. It would be so good.
1: Oh, we do that with a hammer! Don't
2: you stop, stuff. It's nice to know they have so many friends. Um, just so that... Ooh, oh, I have to stand up for this. Just so that all of you know who I am, I thought that most of you probably have no fucking idea, so I'd let you see. Where are you again? I have no idea. <laughs> I found this in a dumpster and I thought, what the fuck? That looks really cool. Why not? Take it, dude. Uh, that was uh, done for me by a very, very sweet little Japanese girl. and brushed and I I love it, I think it's beautiful. Um, I was asked to do this and I kind of laughed when Lawless said we're doing this thing and and we'd really like you to come and read from the book of of Max and I went, fuck Max. I'll come and read from the book of Wes and I ain't reading anything from that assholes book. Um, but it's, it's it's kind of fun um, a lot of you have sort of sat around here and listened to me rambling on like a fuckwit um, each morning when we're having breakfast with things that I have done um, I'm extraordinarily lucky I've done 194 films in my career so far so I uh, I am I leave here and go on the set of another one um, I actually had uh, a couple of people in tears this morning telling them the synopsis it's kind of a special film but it's it's interesting how my life has evolved because I never ever ever wanted to be an actor I was very happy working in bands I was a lead singer in a couple of very big Australian bands so I I thought that was going to be my life my mother was a songwriter she'd be very successful I was the only one of her kids that followed in her footsteps and did anything like what she did. And acting was the furthest thing from my mind. Um, Didn't like it, thought all actors were poofters, still do. Um, But uh, I decided that, no, it wasn't for me. I was badly hurt in a car accident with the band, actually trying to save the life of uh, two kids in the back of a vehicle. I uh, purposely put the vehicle we were in into a post and uh, fractured my back in two places. So I was unable to work with the band for quite a while and I became a total, and you cannot believe this. I just became a total pain in the ass. I mean, me? Oh, please. and our manager took my photograph around all these agencies and uh, one of the agents said, well, we're looking for somebody that we could get for these series of commercials. So I started becoming a male model. Seriously. Um, and that lasted all of like three minutes with me. Um, like, yeah, I'm not going there. Um, and I started then Doing little bits and pieces on television, but I was working with one particular director. I was doing a lot of commercial work with him, and I used to graduate behind the camera because I love being behind the camera with the crew. I love crews, so I would be behind the camera talking to everybody, seeing what they're doing. One day he said to me, "You know, what do you want to be? An actor or a fucking crewman?" And I said, "I want to be you." And he said, "Oh, you think you could?" And I said, "I think I could be better than you." <laughs> take foot out of mouth and walk sheepishly off set. Um, and he just looked at me and he said, you think so? And I went, yes. Uh, and he said, we'll see. And that was it. I thought, uh-oh, you'll never hire me again. And about a month later, I got hired to be his assistant. So I worked my way up from the ground to becoming his producer, and then I started directing. Which was my thing. I loved it. I was like, oh, yeah, God has arrived. (laughs) It was cool, dude. You said jump. People went how high? I loved it. Um, And especially some of those women that give me a hard time, like, jump fucking higher. Um, (laughs) So I was just in in my happy place doing this, this thing. And then I started thinking about it and I thought, you know what, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. I don't know what an actor does. I should actually learn, that would be really cute. So that was sort of where the acting began, as I wanted to know what an actor did so that I could be a better director. I got cast into Road Warrior. <laughs> You're all adults here, so we might as well get to the dirty parts.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs>
2: I got asked to do a stage play called Hosanna, which was written by a Canadian called Michelle Tremblay. Very erotic piece. It's about a transvestite and her boyfriend. In the opening scene, I walk on stage dressed in leather, stripped naked, and masturbate to the audience, who are about where you are.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's, that's the opening scene. There's two of us in the play for two and a half hours. And I end up kissing him. I am in bed with him. I do all the, and everything that's against anything that I am. You know, I was born in a little country town in Australia. I rode horses. I rounded up sheep. I was the all Australian boy, you know, and and actually kissing a guy was kind of the last thing that my mind ever went close to. But it was interesting that we were doing a performance and George Miller's girlfriend happened to come, saw me and contacted George and said, I've just watched a young man who's just starting into acting and he's fearless. He has no fear. He does not care. He gets out there. He puts it all on the stage and I mean all on the stage. (laughs) Um, you've got to see. And George Miller came down, saw me, and henceforth I was asked to do Road Warrior. I'd never done a film in my life. I'd done three television shows in bit parts. And I said to George, I can't do this. And he said, why? And I said, because I would fuck up a good movie. And he said, no, I think you'd be perfect. And I said, no, it's not going to work. And George Miller has this cute way that when you say to him, I'm not doing it, he looks at you and goes, "Uh uh-huh. And you say, no, I'm serious. I'm not doing it. Uh Can you try the costume on? George, it's no use. I'm not doing it. Turn around. Uh (laughs) Actors are dumb. (laughs) Can we see you with the mohawk? I'm not doing the film. Yeah, I know, I know. Just the the mohawk. I did it all. And then he went, yeah, perfect. And I went, mother of fucking... (laughs) So I got roped into doing the film. Um, thereby hangs my career. That if I had never had a, a person like him who had more faith in me than I had, and this is for you, there's no such thing as not being able to act. Everybody acts. I mean, little kids when they're born, they come out of the womb acting, for God's sake. They're the greatest actors in the world. Little kids, they want something, what do they do? Throw a tantrum, it's called acting.
0: <laughs>
2: you cannot be taught to act we all know it what the problem is is we all have it beaten out of us as we grow up it's peer pressure it's your parents telling you to grow up stop acting like an idiot all of these none of you by the way have ever can had that <laughs> <laughs> you get this whole peer pressure thing where you have to conform you have to be one of the normal people so to speak some of us <laughs> Don't do that. (laughs) Some of us slide under the radar and just forget all that shit. Um, And that was basically is what happened. So you cannot be taught acting. It's a natural instinct we all have. But you can be shown the technique and you can be shown the parameters. Acting to me is a very simple thing. It's a square box. When a director talks to you, he gives you all the things he wants put in that box. All the furnishings, the doors, the windows everything and it is your job as an actor to place them where you want them to be once you have that room furnished it is now your job to work within that framework that's all it is it's a very simple thing people like to make it like it's some god-given wondrous talent that that you get it's not it's hard it's fucking hard um it's it's Excruciatingly hard at times when you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger kicking your ass and you're kicking back. It is excruciatingly hard, um, but it's something that gets into your blood. You know, it's it's worse than a drug. I gave up acting twice because I got pissed off with it, and I went into withdrawal. Basically, I, I became this total asshole who was nasty all the time, bad tempered. I was in withdrawal from something, because when you act, the adrenaline's always up. When you're not acting, the adrenaline's down. So you get this up and down thing, there's no middle ground. And so I was just a druggie, a withdrawing druggie, so I went back into acting to get rid of it. Now I'm back directing, which is really cool, and acting, which is a lot of fun. The whole point of this is, is what I'm trying to say to you. I Adore all of you, by the way. You are so fucked up, and it it's so brand new. I really, I really, really do. I think you're just so special, and I say that in the sweetest way, by the way. I think you're so special, and you're so polite. Which, if the end of the world comes, you guys are in deep shit. Believe me. <laughs> You're all you're all so fucking polite, it's like, oh, excuse me, thank you. Can I? I'm thinking, yeah, that's going to help. Um, but I love you anyway. And what my point of that is, is that I love the way you treat me. I love the way you respect me. But it all comes down to one thing. I'm no different than you are. I am exactly the same. I'm just luckier in certain ways. You people, some of you have probably got amazing jobs, careers, and all kinds of things. You have the same thing that I have. But I just happen to be able to act out my fantasies. Most of them are sexual by the way, but um, yeah. <laughs> I just happen to be able to act out my fantasies. And I'll uh, tell you a little story about that one. Um, it's, it's kind of, and I I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not special. I don't think I am. I think I'm just a normal guy who loves everything he does and loves people. I couldn't do this four years or so ago. I couldn't sit in front of you and do this. I was just so fucked up. Now I just realize that because of you and because of the three, four, five, ten million other people who buy, watch and see what I do, I have a career. Not any other reason. It's because you like what I do. You want to watch what I do. You like something I did. I was fortunate to be in one of the best apocalyptic movies that will ever be made. I think that out of everything George has done, it was the most perfect because it had a beginning, a middle, an end. You knew who all the characters were. You knew why they were there. And it played out to the last frame. That's called cinema. And I mean, I was so proud to be part of that. I mean, that was something that I will have for the rest of my life. No one can ever take away from me. It's one of those films that won't die. You know, people talk to you about it all the time. You know, you go somewhere, and the funniest thing is, which I love, people come up and they go, "Oh, blah blah blah, Road Warrior," and I go, "Yeah, it was really cool." And then Mel, and they go, "Oh, fuck him. You were wonderful."
0: <laughs> okay. Nobody talks about Mel. <laughs>
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, it's, it's, it, to me, it's funny that it works that way. Um, I love it, don't get me wrong. I have a ball doing it, as you probably, some of you are probably aware. Um, and getting back to the little sexy thing, I was doing a film one day and they wanted me to do this scene with two women. And they had this, oh yeah, it was fun. They had this gorgeous little girl that they wanted to be the main one. And I looked at her and I went, it ain't happening. And the director said, why not? I said, she's what, 12? And he said, no, she's 23. And I said, yeah, not happening. They actually had to bring her, her birth certificate and, to show me. I was not getting into bed with this woman. I was like, yeah, yeah, I've got to go to jail for like 150 years for having sex with a teenager, not happening. And she was a stripper. The most gorgeous little thing and brilliant actress And we were doing a nude scene, and they started off by putting patches. Whenever you do a nude scene, they put these little things on your.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't work because the camera picks it up, and they have to try angles, and when that doesn't work, they cut them and make them smaller. Eventually, you're wearing a one by half an inch thing on the end of your dick. I mean, it really doesn't work. (laughs) It's not really disguising anything. Um, And she's totally naked, so she's kind of like, I mean, oh, what the fuck? So we're doing this scene and all through this scene I have this gorgeous little girl on top of me. Every fantasy in the world is coming through your brain. And I'm thinking about ice cubes and it's not working. Um,
0: <laughs>
2: kept thinking about, you know, all those things, penguins, ice water, not going to help. And she was laying on me, moving her little ass, which was annoying the crap out of me, whispering in my ear. Bet you I can get you hard.
0: <laughs> Want to bet how long it takes?
2: And I'm going, shut the fuck up.
0: <laughs>
2: she got, I could feel it moving. Oh, yes, it's getting... And this little bitch worked me <laughs> until if she had have got up, I would have been the most embarrassed human being on earth.
0: <laughs>
2: and she just thought it was the funniest thing.
0: <laughs>
2: and I was talking to her and I said, why are you a, a stripper? And she went, You just found out. And it dawned on me, she looks like she's 15 or 16, maybe. She makes over $1,200 a night from all these perverted old men. Not me. All these perverted, I didn't have to pay. All these perverted old men who go in and pay her lots and lots of money for her dance and do her thing. And she said, I'm only doing it for another five years and I'm retiring because I've got my house and my car and I'll have enough money to go to university and do my thing. And she did, which I think is brilliant. She just moved on and did her thing, which I thought was so cool from her. But anyway, this is about me, not sexy women. I've had the... um, (coughs) that I've been unsuccessfully in bed with. All right, so... I should say, we should start this off with brothers and sisters, friends, Romans, no. Brothers and sisters, we're all here to hear from the holy book. The book that brought us all together because of those who came before you, me being one, we have created a society of which you now dominate, of which you will take into the future and you will recreate what we destroyed. I will let you know how this all began. And the people that were involved in the beginning, myself being one. So, I was actually going to be mean and drag a couple of you up here to be my bitches and sit at my feet and have <laughs> me do horrible things to you. But um, the little lady over there is a little too horny for that. So I thought I'd
0: not. <laughs> That's
2: what I figured. <laughs> I'd be in so much trouble. There'd be more guys than girls coming over. I don't
0: know.
2: <laughs> but, even my brain doesn't go that far. In time. I thought I'd wait a second. But anyway, actually, if anybody wants to come up and sit on the edge of the stage, and be my bitches while we're doing this. They'll um, get to participate because I'm going to have a lot of fun with you lot. All right, that wasn't a request. That was a fucking order. You you get your asses up here and sit off the front <laughs> of the stage.
0: Now you're
2: talking. Hey. Yay. Come on, this uh, is what I love. The first thing up here are three guys.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let's right go hunt in right? the wasteland,
2: Bernie. Well, there's Not <laughs> <laughs> well, with you lot on, though. It's such an interesting life I lead. Good lord. All right. What? What?
0: what? <laughs> wow. Order matters.
2: <laughs> well, you and I are very close friends, so I mean. You know, yeah, yeah, we've, we've discussed my tall blonde with the big tits that can't say no. And, you know, I mean, God, you know more about me than I do. A lot more, actually. All right. So, the book. Get your ass off my book.
0: <laughs>
2: Seriously? All right. <laughs> so, this is what it is. This is what it's about. It says, Max roves, Max Rages. It is all he can do now, this gaunt hollow-eyed man, he and the machine and the dog, which is all he has left in the world that is crumbling all around him, burning up the highways through the dust and the stinging flurries of sand, that are whipped up by the hot wind against the windscreen of his black-on-black pursuit car, which bears the scars of the many times he has had to beat back the bands of marauders attracted by the fuel he is carrying in his tanks. The machine and the dog and his memories The sun's fierce heat pounds relentlessly down on the baking earth. Beneath the shivering heat, the clusters of rock seem as if they are in constant motion. Mirages seem to float outwards, out of the beating heat. Images form a face, faces of people and places, parachutes dropping from the sky, which then becomes a deep thundering black, black and purple, and shot through with searing flames. The wasteland is tinged with red. It is strangely beautiful, like the end of the earth. The sun large in the sky, and all life having shriveled away to nothing. Max drives fast, but the thoughts keep crowding in. Glimpses, flashes. There's no way to escape them, no matter how much you put on the speed. Like there's no way to escape the marauders, the vultures, bloodsuckers, and all along the highways, into the fields where they have been chased, littering creek beds, There they are, the smashed, rusting, burnt-out hulks of the vehicles that have fallen prey to them. The heat plays tricks on the eyes, which are heavy and gritty through the lack of sleep and the effort of concentration, the necessity not to let the, the guard down for a single moment. But one thrives on this energy, borrowed and stored away in the system. One just goes and goes and goes. A woman's face, sleepy, smiling, Flushed with the love-making that has just ended, a voice murmuring in his ear, a baby crying, Jesus, no. Foot down on the pedal, the engine roaring, and the countryside spinning past a monotonous sameness about it, hills and gulches, all red, so barren. Yet one jeeps, but one just keeps on going. One couldn't stay still, no place to settle. The search was going on all the time, no end to it. It's funny, when you think about it, the way, the banner in which the world is ending. Cataclysmic, the way everyone expected it would. Somehow, it's still funny. It had to happen, and it is happening. The population is scattered everywhere, and the cities, see the cities now? They're crumbling and slowly falling apart. The decay has set in, and there is nothing that can be done to stop it. Even if the will were there, the cities are nothing more than shells now, towering monuments to fertility. Perhaps it is funny, this thing that is happening now. Well, Max forages, because people had actually believed in the performance of things and the permanence, that it go on and on the way it was. And they could put up buildings, glittering spires that reached higher and higher, and they could reach for, the, for and conquer the universe. Perhaps it has the smugness of those days that made it funny. Maybe there was bitter humor in those. In, in, uh, excuse me. Maybe there was bitter humor to be found in panic, in looting, death, and the wholesale destruction. Even when all the signs were there, and the satellites beamed the flickering images into every household, those images of confrontation and conflagration, the screaming hordes that swept all before them, the blazing buildings, the execution squads, the assassinations and all other forms of violence that had taken on a comfortable domestic aspect. There was still no reason to believe that a standoff wouldn't be reached. Just this side of the brink, a brief diffusing hiatus, a withdrawal within a continued state of hostility, a problem never, never to be solved because there just was no solution. It was like the surf rolling in, drawing back, the one motion contemplating the other, a law of nature. It was inconceivable that the tide wouldn't ebb, that the moon wouldn't continue to yield its timeless influence. But no, not this time. It was the fuel that mattered. Banknotes fluttered in the streets of. Oh no. Technology's falling apart. (laughs) (laughs) We're all going down. Just switch on the power strip. Yeah, breaker. On the, there we go. We're back on. We're back on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we're back on. And I was just about to stand up the
0: strip. I mean, I, I thought, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, you're
2: a sick budger. seriously. Um. They were caught in drifts piled up in gutters against the walls and in doorways. The wind caught them and sent them in flurries across the open ground, across the squares and plazas and the parks, which had become veritable jungles by now, and gold, stockpiled, forgotten, useless, only the fuel. The institutions had gone, the banks, stock exchanges, those great corporations that had spread their tentacles across the globe, those great palaces of glass and marble, deserted now, dank and crumbling mausoleums. Max, there's something bothering you. You've hardly said a word all night. A distant voice, a smile, flickering candlelight. What was it? A celebration? Just tired, I guess, honey. Nothing wrong. I'm all right. The way the light caught Jessie's hair, a gentle rippling of soft light every time she moved her head, pure gold. A smile hovering, a stirring of desire. I don't believe you, Max. You can't fool me, you never have been able to fool me. I can see you're worried, her eyes shining. Everything about Jessie shone. Why should I be worried? How unconvincing it sounded, a hollow voice. I've got you and Sprob, the three of us. That's all I care about. As long as I have you and the kid. Jessie frowning, her voice low and serious as she abstractedly stirs her coffee, the spoon going round and round, making small clicking sounds against the side of the cup there's been talk. What sort of talk? Disturbing talk about you, about your life expectancy. You know, there's a book be uh, um sorry. You know, there's a book being run. It's odds on that you won't last a week. But he had, and the week after that, and the weeks, and the months, and the years, so many years after that, he was the one who had lasted. He was the only one left. And frankly, there were times when he wished he wasn't. The contended roar of the powerful engine, hands loose on the steering wheel and a cloud of dust rising behind him as he sped through the weird, arid country. With its isolated outcrops of rock, the dried riverbeds, the clumps of saltbush and spinifex, proclamations, declarations, the lines of cars that stretched and stretched, the queues that grew longer each day to soak up what remained of the fast evaporating fuel supplies the cost of which rocketed and rocketed until it seemed that no amount of money was enough to purchase a single gallon of that very limited stock that had not already been commandeered for the essential services, which were fast breaking down in any case. The outbreaks of fighting in the streets had become steadily less sporadic. The mobs had surged this way and that, a devouring monster that destroyed everything in its path turned loose. Factories had ground to a standstill, useless now, the starved machinery choking in rust. And back further to the time of the night rider, the tow cutter, names now, nothing more. The screech of tires and the tow cutter's bike hurtling itself between the front wheels of the huge road rig that had come lumbering up over a rise of the road, and the co- tow cutter still conscious under the grill, until the second sump guard ripped his head and shoulders off at the chest. The tow cutter had paid for what he had done under Jesse and Sprog. He and the others. But even so, Max had felt he had been cheated in some way. The tow cutter hadn't deserved to die as quickly as he had. No way. And even that split second of awareness that remained to him after his bike slured in beneath those gigantic wheels wasn't enough. Not nearly enough. The past rolled into the present and the present rolled into the future. Sometimes it was difficult to disentangle them. Movement. Ceaseless movement, on and on, and shit, there wasn't a future. Why think about a future? All the lights had long been turned off. Max is not alone on this stretch of road. At what precise point he realizes he was not alone on this stretch of road, he can't be sure. His instincts, being what they are, so highly tuned, must have registered the movement, a new element in the composition of the red landscape. Maybe even before his eyes had picked it up, something different, an alarm bell triggered, But now he can see them, clearly now, burning up the road behind him, steadily gaining on him. Specks at first, tiny black specks, materializing through the shimmering heat behind him, growing larger, looming gradually, taking on form and substance. Three of them. They have picked up his set, the scent of fuel, another tank to be drained, another metal carcass to be systematically dismembered. The supercharger roars, brute power, unrestrained. He can see them now in the mirror. Make out what they look like. There are three vehicles behind him, closing up the distance. One of them, a big, powerful bike, has a passenger riding the pillion. The rider is all in black leather and metal. Metal shoulder pads, a breastplate, and his head. Bare except for a pair of goggles. He's shaven except for a bright red swatch on top. (laughs) A mohawk. This one, who veers his bike in an attempt to cut Max off from the inside. But Max is ahead of him, blocking him, forcing him to swing back and lose ground. Almost naked, the pillion passenger is tightly hugging the rider. Leaning with the movement of the bike, his long golden hair being whipped back by the airstream. Oh, give me a fucking break. (laughs) Seriously? When's he in the front of the bike blowing me? Good god. (laughs) (laughs) God! (laughs) Bearing nice! (laughs) There is the bike. Then the chrome and brown street racer and then the dune buggy covered with animal skins. The noise of the engines hammer through the rippling heat. Max swings the black on black. The old pursuit car from his police days from side to side forestalling the efforts of his pursuers to creep up inside of him. The heat and the noise. And beside him, the dog whimpers a little. The tiredness is gone now. The adrenaline shoots through him like quicksilver. The shrieking in his ears, his head full of the sound that seems to be punched into it through dozens of holes. And a curtain of red dust at times partially obscuring the three vehicles close behind him. A bend taking a close on the inner side, the dune buggy coming round in a wide sweep, and the street racer cutting in between it and Max. The bike has fallen behind. The road rises, his foot down hard, Max makes the rise, and for an instant, the briefest fraction of time. It seems as if his wheels have left the ground and he is airborne. Then there is a thud, a bump, and the car is slewing from one side of the road to the other. A wrench on the wheel to correct the drift, and at the bottom of the rise, blocking the road, a tangle of wrecked vehicles, one of them a trailer down on one crumpled wheel. Cars that had been torn apart, wreckage everywhere, scattered and strewn across the road. No time to decide or even to slacken speed. Just take it as it comes, trust to luck. Always trust to luck. And luck had always brought him through in the past. Maybe it would again. No time to think even with the heart feeling large and tight in the chest. The marauder's only a matter of a few yards behind him. To slow down now, no chance. The supercharger drums and throbs and there is a reek of petrol. His reflexes so finely tuned as the great In over which he has taken such loving care, tinkering, adjusting, polishing, treating it like a baby. And now, now, the the landscape lifts and turns, half a degree or more, seems to be vibrating, breaking up. The trailer looms, fills the windscreen, and then, once again, a matter of only feet away, a wrench on the wheel and he is locked into a sweeping curve to the right, past the trailer and through the wrecks. That are scattered around it, cannoning off them, ploughing through them with a tortured scream of rendered metal. Still going, pushing the wrecks out of the way, dislodging them and pushing them deeper into the dust, which shears up from—excuse uh, <coughs> me—which shears up from beneath the spinning wheels and beside him, uh, behind him, as he comes around in the curve, slamming broadside into another rusted hulk, bouncing off and forcing a way through. The no-name dog barking furiously, jumping up and down in agitation in the kitty seat. Behind him, then to one side, as he pulls the car out of the curve, he sees the bike with the mohawk and the golden passenger, flying through the air with a sort of effortless grace, swooping through the air like some great bird clear over the trailer, and in that quivering instant, before it hits the ground, lurches a little, then rightens itself, begins to weave its way through the wrecks. It seems a bit as if it is stuck there, suspended against the sky, from which the heat has drained all colour, the road racer doesn't quite make it over the trailer. It knocks against the trailer, then spinning clips one of the wrecks, swerves, bumps another wreck. The engine racing furiously, dust swirling, Max has straightened out of the curb and is heading across the open country. I'm aware now that the third vehicle, the doom buggy, has managed to avoid the wreckage and has veered off to the right in an attempt to head him off. Then Max is swinging back to the highway again, ducking in between it and the buggy, which cuts sharply in after him, the bike and the racer, have already left the wreckage behind them and are heading up the highway towards the point where Max rejoins it, with the buggy bouncing across the rough terrain behind him. You're a good kid, Max. One day you'll make a good cop. One day. Maybe it was something then to be a good cop. Maybe it meant something to be a good cop. One thought about cops in those days. Bad people and cops. The division was not always so clear-cut. But they existed and the people talked about law and order. The need to keep order. But that was at a time when there were laws to be kept, although they were fast disappearing. Even then, those laws to which people, those good people, law-abiding people, still paid some sort of lip service because old habits died hard. A good cop, one day. Max, you'll make a good cop. The light had been reflected from the chief's high-shaven skull. It had gleamed on black leather, superimposed on the harsh, dry landscape that is rushing up at at him, the same monotonous landscape, and with his pursuers, the marauders gaining on him again on this long, flat stretch of road. The chief's face, the thick neck, the broad shoulders and powerful forearms, that ugly lined face, and the nose that had been battered so many times in the years he had been in the force, that it was now a squat, shapeless blob spread across his face, which made his Skinty eyes appear far too close together. And the mouth, too small to balance it. The chief, worn out, disillusioned, no longer even making a token attempt to keep up the morale and his disintegrating force. I don't know anymore, Max. I don't know anymore about one goddamn thing. Thoughts and speed and everything falling apart, tires gripping the road surface. And then suddenly, the loud whooping sound that rises up from somewhere beneath the dashboard of this racing charger which seems to drop around him in waves, like hoops that were being thrown over him, hoops that became tighter and tighter as they drop over him. Christ, it's the fuel running low. The alarm letting him know the fuel is running low, and shit, there's nothing for it but to cut out the supercharger. And once that has been cut out, no choice. Take it as it comes. Good cop, Max. Slowing down there, now the alarm has faded away, but the echoes remain flying around inside his head. As the speed falls away, it seems now that Max is crawling along. With the speed there is life, but without speed, just going along, a hundred or more. It is as if an essential part of Max has fallen away, choked away by the, the whoops from the alarm. So, so the dog has crawled under the seat. The dog knows there will be trouble. Max is relaxed, posture is deceptive. Every nerve end is keyed up. It has happened before, many times before. More times than he can remember, even if he wants to remember and it will happen again. Expect it, waiting, the marauders fast closing the distance. The bike is coming up on the passenger side, looming up in the corner of Max's Vision. Another nomad biker with his golden lover.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: another nomad lighter with this very imposing blonde boy, sitting on another bike, fuck,
0: <laughs> another nomad, <laughs>
2: Another nomad biker with his king clinging, clinging tightly to him as they draw abreast. Brief impressions, disjointed, and click-ish. The biker raises something and aiming it at him—a bow. It looks like a crossbow, but there's hardly time for Max to notice it. It really registers that it is a fiery moho- that the fiery Mohawk is aiming it at him, as the road racer is drawing up on his side. The passenger in the road racer also raising a, rep- a weapon and glancing at it. Max can see that it is a gas-powered porter pack gun with the large rounded barrel out of which protrude six metal arrows. The finger tightens on the trigger, bracing himself, Max hits the brakes. The lock tires screech their protest as the car skids until it is almost at right angles to the road. Caught unawares, both the bike and the road racer surge past him. Just as the Porter Pack loses its deadly arrows, the car is still shuddering, shuddering as Max lines it up with the road again as two of the arrows smack uselessly against his side and as one of them thuds into the fleshy upper part of the biker's arm. The bike swerves and leaves the road, weaving erratically across the dry, rutted ground. And that's one of them out of the picture for the moment. Maybe not very long at that. Once the rider has picked up his balance again and brought his bike back onto the road, the Doom Buggy is still coming in across the country to try and head Max off. And the road racer just in front of him So now that he has a slight advantage, it's time for Max to take the initiative. He can do something now. With that racer just in front of him, he needn't feel so useless, so much the victim. Changing down, hitting the supercharger again and that low rumble rising to a high scream and the great surge of power that lifts him and carries him forward, fast closing the distance between him and the racer, ramming into the rear of the racer. A bump, a jolt, a metallic clash of metal on metal. Wheels screaming again and again, drawing back slightly, then hurtling the raging machine against the racer. And now there is another intersection ahead of them, A low and a long road rig abandoned at the side of the road. The dune buggy is cutting right in now, it has almost reached the intersection, where beside the road rig there is a massive debris scattered about junk, bits of furniture, broken things. Max eases back again, nerves tingling now. A delicious feeling, in action, judgment, cool, calculating his chances. Then put down again, the pedal press right to the floorboards, flush with the floorboards, the engine howling as the car springs forward again, ramming the road racer, hurtling it away just as the speeding dune buggy bumps back into the road. Beautiful. What could be more beautiful or satisfying than to see the road racer smash into the rear of the dune buggy, catching it, lifting it, and flinging it away like a broken toy? What music there is in the echo of that scream that has come from the racer, just as it, is, as it has hit the buggy and sent it spinning like a top into the side of the road rig. There is poetry, surely, of a rough and savage kind. And it seems that the action has slowed down enough to give emphasis to those curves and parables that are so intricately described. In the, side of the, in the side of the road racer, sliding around in half circle and ramming hard into the power pole, which splinters and snaps with the force of the impact and slowly, slowly topples onto the road. There is no sign of movement from the road racer, and the dune buggy is nothing more than a pile of twisted, crumpled metal beneath the implacable bulk of the road rig. A wheel spins. Dust settles along with the silence. Throwing on the handbrake, Max, the valiant, the victor, swings the black on black around in a tight turn and pulls up in the middle of the intersection. Winners and losers, victors and vanquished. Fuel is streaming from the ruptured tank of the doom buggy. Swinging himself out of the car, Max reaches into the back and pulls out a jerry can. A soft moaning sound is coming from the crumpled buggy. Spilt fuel is forming a widening rainbow pool on the bitumen. Bending over the broken fuel, Fuel tank, Max wedges the jerry can beneath the gushing fuel. He whips the bandana he is wearing from around his neck and begins to mop up the gasoline from the bitumen with it. For without fuel, they were nothing. They had built for themselves a house of straw. The gushing fuel rattles the can. Max squeezes the soaking bandana out into the can. The moaning from inside the dune buggy is barely audible now. That and the gasoline drumming into the can are the only sounds. Then suddenly, there is another sound a shrill whistle that slices keenly through the silence and desolation. Max looks up and sees on the crest of a low hill overlooking the intersection the scarlet mohawk, straddling his bike and grinning down at him, a figure in black leather and metal that glints in the harsh light. Still with his arms around oh Fuck <laughs> still with his arms around him the golden boy's face is expressionless. It might have been chiseled from stone. Yet Ah, what?
0: Don't stop. Don't stop.
2: Yet how sensual are its lines? They stare at each other for a long, vibrant moment.
0: You're blushing.
2: These two, wondering, Max and the grinning Mohawk, and then slowly, deliberately, his eyes never leaving Max, the figure on the hill raises one hand closes it around the shaft of the arrow that is embedded in his arm, gives it a sharp tug, and the arrow comes free. A trickle of blood runs down his arm from the wound. Triumphantly, the the biker nomad holds up the arrow, brandishing it at max as he screams. His defiance and hatred of the man who has, for the time being, outwitted him. Then, slipping the arrow into the quiver at his hip, the biker guns the motor and, swinging the bike away, disappears from the crest of the hill. The sound of the engine fades into the distance, and Max, once more, is alone. And every time I do something like this, I have to do one thing everybody always asks me, so rather than have you you nice people ask me to do it, I'll do it for you, and that is very simple. When I swing into the compound, and I go, You! You can run, but you can't hide. (laughs) Now, of course, I can't talk, fuck you all. Um, No, just kidding. I figured that since you're all dumb enough to be out here listening to me rattle on like a fuckwit, We'd open the house up to questions. If there's anything you want to know about me, my sex life, my dog. <laughs> Sorry? Are they related to your dog? dog and Oh, totally. The uh, <laughs> worst actor you've ever worked with. Who's what? The worst actor you've ever worked with. The worst actor? Yeah. By Dunaway down Dunaway, Bay
0: Dunaway. <laughs> <laughs> she was
2: not a nice lady, I'm sorry, but there's been very, very few people in my rescue. life that I haven't enjoyed working with, and she tops the list.
1: Rescue. Rescue? Your dog rescue.
2: Oh, you mean my wolves?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yes.
2: I, Where do we what?
0: How do we donate?
2: Oh, um, if you go online to wolfconnection.org, you can donate. That would be amazing. Um, some of you know, some of you don't. I'm very involved with the uh, wolf rescue in California and wolf dogs. Because California has a tendency to kill wolf dogs and things. California has a tendency to kill lots of things. Um, especially creativity. Um, and uh, I uh, joined this... To, uh, four, four and a half years ago when it first started. And uh, we had six wolf dogs. No, I lie, we had four wolf dogs and two wolves. One was a full blood grey and one was a full blood timber wolf. And um, we just started looking after them because they were going to be euthanized if we didn't. So we started just um, looking. And there's a a show on television, I don't know if you've ever seen it, called Pit Bulls and Parolees. It was actually in her compound. She had this little area where there was these wolves that she had been given because the lady who owned them uh, had died and somebody, there was 29, and somebody had thrown poisoned meat over the fence and killed most of them. And um, so we ended up starting with these dogs. And uh, there was two brothers who were absolutely the most amazingly beautiful animals God ever created. They were wolves crossed with melmutes. They were absolutely huge and just adorable. And they were the pack leaders. And there was a couple of others that um, who were older. So we, we started looking after them. We used to take them out for hikes up the mountain and do everything we could with them. And it slowly progressed from that to people wanting to come up and see the wolves and go on hikes with them. And uh, then what we did got around and we started being asked to take in wolf dogs. And it's very funny, the the gentleman that was in oh gosh damn it. He was the, the guitarist. There's a, a an ice cream named after him. Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Jerry Garcia had
2: two wolf dogs and we called them the slugs. Because Jerry Garcia had fed them on people food all their lives and they were as large as they were Tall as they were long. They couldn't walk. They waddled. So Sorry? Yeah, they they were just really... And they got given to us with um, quite a nice check from his people saying that Jerry's last wish was that dogs come to you and you look after them. And it was like, well, the first thing we're going to do is stop feeding them. Um, They seem to have had a lot. So we had to break them off people food and get them onto real food and they lost all their weight, became really cool. One of them unfortunately um, died of a stomach complaint, but his brother is still alive with us and and a gorgeous, gorgeous dog. Um, We end up getting um, dogs that have been so mistreated, it's not funny, one of our dogs was found tied to a tree with barbed wire. I I can never understand what goes through someone's mind to put barbed wire around a dog's neck that's probably 12 months old and expect that it's not going to pull. So she now still has the marks and no hair grows on this line around her neck where she was um, tied. We get a lot, a lot, a lot of them from situations like that. People have this habit of buying wolf dogs because they look cute. They're fluffy, they've got big paws, they're adorable they grow up to be 100 pound to 120 pound of wolf. And what people don't understand, because it's called a wolf dog, is misnomer. They're still wolves. And they're a, a little bit like somebody who has personality disorder. They have a wolf and they have a dog, and they fight with each other inside their body, which one will become the dominant feature. A lot of wolf dogs become wolves as they get older. They're very doggy when they're young. As they grow older, they become wolves and they become very wolfish and they um, have very wolfish habits. One of them is that wolves hate being on their own. They're pack animals. So if you have one, you got to be with it all the time. It ain't going to like it if you're not. It will tear your house into very small splinters um, and enjoy doing it, by the way. We, for a test one day, just for the hell of it, we put a sofa bed, brand new, in the cage with two of our wolf dogs. It lasted six days. And at the end of that six days, we had enough of what was left to put in a little plastic bag. That was all that was left of this. I don't know if they ate the friggin' thing and were shitting out bits of wood for months or what, but they got this thing to be. They do that to your house. People don't get it, and then when they get them and they get to that point, they put them in pounds, and the pounds euthanize them. So we try to get as many as we can. That's my big thing in my life. That and kids. Please don't take that the wrong way. (laughs) I don't have any, but I adore kids. I um, I love working with kids. To me, there are two things. People like us, you know what? We're old enough, dumb enough, stupid enough to look after ourselves. When you're 10 years old, you're not.
0: If you need somebody
2: who will stand up for you, somebody who will be there when the bully's kicking the shit out of you to be the one to say, you know what, come here. Let's do this next time he does it. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't do it anymore. They just let it go on and on, and people commit suicide over it. Yeah. And especially cyberbullying. I don't get that. I, I find that, that that is just some kind of thing that's come out of the back of the... He off and down and comes and now everybody's cyberbullying, You know, you're a fat little shit. I'd go up and grab him by the throat and hold him on the wall and say, "Excuse me." <laughs> um, but that's that's me. I have these things. I do everything I can for kids and for animals. I have a big passion for animals. I have photographs all over my house of me with lions, um, with chimpanzees, with a tiger. Um, I was very fortunate that the property we now have for the wolves was once a compound uh, where a lot of animals were trained for the films and one of them was a tiger and this amazingly beautiful tiger who the guy that owns it said I'll uh, let you come in and um, play with it and I was like yeah that's not gonna happen (laughs) Um, I may be big and dumb but I'm not that dumb Um, this animal is rather much bigger than I am And it was the cutest thing, and it was so funny because he walked up to the cage, and there was a rock in the middle of this cage, and it was probably 18 inches by 12 inches, sitting in the middle of nothing. And this tiger crept up to this rock on its all fours and then laid down behind it, and I swear to God, you were standing at the gate going, where the fuck did he go? (laughs) He was behind this rock, and you couldn't see him, and when he walked in, It sprang on him as he walked past because he knew what I was going to do and he wrestled with it and everything. And then he said to me, come in, he's fine, she's fine, sorry. And I said, "Uh, (laughs) it's been a good life. I'll go and do this. And of course the minute I walked in the cage it spun around, came racing over and just stood in front of me and I was looking down at this thing that was here with teeth like this going, "Uh, please don't do this. And just rose, they don't spring, they just sort of lift up on their hind legs and put its feet on my shoulders. And looked me square in the eye, well it went cross-eyed looking me square in the eyes, because its head's a little bigger than mine. And then it licked me.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and I went, what the fuck?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and it started to purr.
0: <laughs>
2: so I had this, this really good friend who I, it was just like a big cat, it was just the most adorable, adorable animal. And uh, he moved to, we got the property because he moved to Texas. He couldn't handle Californian bullshit. Um, So he took all his animals and she died two months after he got to Texas. She was very old anyway, but it was just, it was heartbreaking. Um, He wrote to me and sent me this whole thing because he knew how much I loved her. And he sent me this thing on her and she was just the most adorable animal. I mean, all animals to me... Not because I'm Buddhist or any other thing. I'm a great Buddhist, I swear, like a fucking trooper. Um, but then Buddha says nothing about language.
0: Um,
2: all animals, to me, deserve the same respect we give each other. I don't care who we are. And I am very serious about this. My mother brought me up. I am quarter Aboriginal. Um, before I had a very bad car accident, my nose was much wider, which was very Aboriginal. And they rebuilt it because I sort of indented it into the front of the car. Um, And I've grown up with a whole different attitude. The people, it doesn't matter what color they are, who they are, what they do, what they think they are, they they deserve the respect that we would want to have. Until they prove they're an asshole. (laughs) Then it's cool. (laughs) You can do what you like at that point. But to that point, they deserve to be respected and to be treated with respect. We all do. Everybody. I don't give a shit, you know. The only person who I think in this world doesn't, and I'll get myself into a real fight here, doesn't deserve to be treated with respect is somebody running for president at the moment.
0: (laughs) Anybody running for president.
2: Yeah, true, but one of them in particular. I mean, he scares the living crap out of me. Um,
0: Bring the
2: apocalypse. uh, It's seriously coming. I I want someone to get him by the neck, lift his hair, well, his hairpiece, and see if 666 is printed against him. He scares the shit out of me. Um, But apart from that, uh, yeah, any more questions? I don't want to get into politics or anything. I hate it.
1: So a story that you that I've already heard from you that I think everyone would like, you kind of uh, hesitated in the, uh, the blonde, uh, sensual boy on the back of your bike. Uh, I think that people would really like to know uh, how George Miller approached you and the background story that Wes had. It, I think that was a, a really interesting story.
2: George is an incredible person to be around. He really is. I adore him. And he's one of these fun people. When we made the costume, my ass was like yours.
0: <laughs> not quite as
2: nice, don't get me wrong. But, and when I first put it on, I went, not happening.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and uh, the, uh, Miss Mercury, who was the uh, designer of wardrobe, she went, yes, it is. And I went, no, it's not. And, and she said, why? And I said, because every time I jump on and off the bike, I'm going to have scars. <laughs> And she went, what? I said, I'm jumping off bikes, and on bikes, and running through things. And I don't like my bare ass in the wind. (laughs) And she went, oh, all right. Well, we'll give you a little flap. (laughs) (laughs) Because at some stage, I had mentioned to her that I always wanted to play an Indian. (laughs) So I got to play one. (laughs) Um, And she made all the costume. I did my thing. And then George. was talking to him, he said, we've got p- things that we have to do. And um, they were casting stuff. And this blonde boy came in with the pizzas. And George went, want to be in a movie? <laughs> he became the, my little bum buddy on the bike, <laughs> which wasn't supposed to be the way it was. In actually, in the book that's written on the script, It starts off with a scene of a um, farmhouse on a hill, and all the marauders ride up to this farmhouse, except me, I'm down below, watching. And they start burning the place, they drag people out of the place, they're killing people, they're raping the, the woman, and this young kid, blonde kid, comes running out of the house, one of the marauders grabs him by the hair, and pulls him back, puts a knife to his throat, and I have ridden up by that time, and I just, I stop him. I just look at the kid, and he can't talk. He's so traumatized by what's going on. He's trying to talk. He can't get anything to come out. And I put him on the back of my bike, and I ride off. The next scene is the one I read there, where we're riding down the road towards uh, Mel. And um, because I'm a smart ass, and always has been, George and I used to have these great little arguments about shit. And one of them was that I had to always be straight because I used to love sending my character up. He's got a fucking blonde boyfriend, I might as well be gay. And George would get really mad with me. So one day they've got a Japanese film crew and they're filming me. And I'm being a smart ass and I'm up on the boardwalk and I'm prissing up and down the boardwalk. And the guy's asking me questions, and I'm going, oh, let me think about that. You know, where's, I'm doing this whole thing, and I'm thinking I'm hysterical. I am just so fucking funny. And when it all finished, I sort of turned around to walk off. And George is two feet away from me. And I went,
0: oh,
2: ah, uh, George. Ha! Uh, and he just looked at me and he went, I went over till the fat lady. Seeing And consequently, that opening scene got cut out of the movie. My punishment. But uh, it was worth it. It was totally worth it just to be a little shit.
0: <laughs>
2: but the funny side of that is, as Mel Gibson, whom I adore, by the way. I love Mel. I think he's a brilliant actor. Amazing director. Um, what he does in his private life, I don't really give a shit about. But the only thing I've ever said to anybody is, has anybody ever heard the other side of those videotapes? We've never heard a word. All we hear is him. What did they say to get him pissed off? As I said to someone who was interviewing me, Want to come for a ride on the freeway with me? You might understand what I'm talking about. I become the devil, seriously. I am spitting fire. I have horns. I want to kill something when I'm on the freeway. And I have tried at tried to take my word, but I've gotten out of the car and terrified women. Um, and it's just, you know, we all have a temper. I don't give a shit who we think we are. We do. And. I think the difference with a lot of people is that when you explode, it's over and done with. When I get mad at someone, I will say what I think, and that's it. It's ended. I don't have any hard feelings or they give a shit. I'll go and get a glass of beer and we'll all have a drink. What the fuck? Um, but a lot of people can't do that, which is a shame. And I think that is the problem of what's they pinned on, on Mel, um, trying to make him into. And also, you got to remember, he went and did a. a- a film that was against the um, Catholic religion, against the Jewish religion, and he did it in Aramaic. And he put his own money in it, and he made, at last count, $650 million. He wasn't liked because of that. Nobody wanted to do that movie. They didn't want it done. He did it. So he bucked the establishment. The establishment, establishment fought back anything that they could find on him. Not a nice business we're in. But um, it's it's kind of fun if you keep low-key.
0: <laughs>
2: Nobody has a clue who you are.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, except, oh, you shit.
0: <laughs>
2: but uh, no, it's, it's, it's fun. And um, yeah, that was the little boy, blue, blonde boy. Any serious yeah. questions? <laughs> yes? Yeah,
0: you said you were friendly with Mel Gibson Was it difficult for you in the film to exhibit such hatred towards his character?
2: No. I just remembered every time he beat me at cards. (laughs) Like, you motherfucker. The guy, serious to God, the guy was born with a silver spoon up his ass. He seriously was. He just... We're in a uh, casino, and I'm playing the one-armed bandit. Actually, it was playing me. Um, it was taking all my money and Mel came up to talk to me and he's standing beside me and this little old lady came over and she poked him in the ribs with a walking stick and said, Sonny, if you're going to stand beside the machine, play it. And he went, oh, sorry, ma'am." And he put 25 cents in it, pulled the handle and just continued to talk to me. Every light in the fucking casino went on. <laughs> I just stood there and looked at him. and I went, I hate you. <laughs> I seriously, did, God hate you. <laughs> if I had a knife, I would stab you, you son of a bitch. He won the major jackpot.
0: No.
2: <laughs> it was easy to hate him.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, Mel, he was fun. He was a Great guy, actually. My favourite memory of Mel is him standing in my motel room in a pair of bunny slippers <laughs> in a tatty old robe on the phone to his wife talking about the birth of his first child. My favorite memory of him. But uh, yeah, hey, we all have problems.
0: <laughs> Next. Favorite
2: movie? Yep. I say who, what, ho?
0: Favorite movie that you
2: have been on? Oh, favorite movie I've been on? Everybody expects me to say Road Warrior. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> um, <coughs> No. It's actually a little film that I did called King of the Ants. Um, It was one of those really cool little, it's probably one of the most um, vicious films I've ever done in my life. It makes you sick. It's really heavy. Um, But I play the only redeeming character in the film, and I have the worst death. And I really like that. I thought that was so cool. I'm the only one that has any redeeming qualities, and I get my back broken, my leg broken, and then I get burned alive. (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> what year was this made?
2: Uh, King of the Ants? About five years ago. Oh,
0: fun!
2: Yeah, it's out there. You can get hold of it. It was a book written by an Englishman. It's, it's actually a incredibly interesting story. It's a fascinating story, actually, about how to turn a young man who is normal into a killer, who then turns on the teachers. It was kind of fun. That was one of my favorites. Um, Mad Max and, of course, Commando, Weird Science, all those. They're all movies that I love, don't get me wrong. But one of my favorite, favorite movies that I've ever done was a, a boxing movie I did called Circle Man, um, which I love because I played a retarded boxer. who was more like a kid in a big guy's body. And the only time I became a, a raving lunatic was if anybody <clears throat> drew blood. Like if I got hit and I started to bleed, then I just went insane. Um, it was Emotionally, a hard movie to make, and it—I nearly died doing it. I um, had dislocated my knee in a scene, and we had to do a scene that was in Canada at Christmas time. Canada at Christmas time is very <laughs> fucking cold, and we were filming in a little rowboat, which I had to jump out of into the water, and I had a steel thing on my leg, you know, the brace, which everybody forgot about, including me. Actors, idiots. <laughs> Two words.
0: <laughs>
2: and I did the scene, and at the end of it, I, I raised my hands up because I've just beaten this poor son of a bitch to death. And I jump out of the, the thing into the water, and I'm supposed to walk to the shore. And I go to take a step, and of course, this metal has frozen. And I'm sort of like, oh, trying to move. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Fun. And the paramedics are going, get out of the water, Burn. I'm going, no, I'm cool. They go, get out of the fucking water. No, I'm fine. Get out of the water. I'm not cold. You're dying, you son of a bitch. Get out of the water. And I was freezing to death. And they actually got me out, and they made me walk in circles for two and a half hours. So the blood, my blood, which had started to freeze, would not get ice in it and go to my heart and kill me. So that was uh, probably the second closest I've ever been to dying. Apart from being hurled up in a helicopter. What's
0: the first?
2: Being hurled up in a helicopter. (laughs) I did a scene where I have to run across a field being shot at, get shot in the shoulder, spin around, grab the wheel of a helicopter, the helicopter takes off, and that's basically the scene. But the way they were shooting it was the helicopter lifts about two feet off the ground so that you get the impression, then they cut to me. And I'm in a rig so I can't fall to my doomable death. And then they fly away. Only in the translation of the um, Russian pilot, oh. he didn't quite get the fact that you go up two feet. So he took off, oh. and I was hanging onto the wheel, going. Australian actor dies in
0: <laughs>
2: Poland through someone's roof. Falls off helicopter. Hmm. Interesting way to go, and the. Um, Fortunately for me the stunt director was in the helicopter and he grabbed me and pulled me in. But it was a little terrifying because there was actually nothing I could do and I knew I was going to fall because my arm that was around the wheel was slowly coming back around the wheel. And I could do nothing about it and I knew that I would just fall probably 300 feet to my death. Which isn't a fun thing to just sort of think about at the time. (laughs) I couldn't find anybody to hate. (laughs) But uh, yeah. What else?
1: What did you think of Fury Road?
2: I loved it. As a spectacle, as an amazing road movie, as something that just took hold of you by the balls and didn't let go until it finished. I thought it was brilliant. As a movie, I thought it sucked. (laughs) Didn't have a fucking story. Oh, let's leave. Let's go back. (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> what well, the fuck, you just left. Why are you coming
2: back in enough cases?
0: You still talk
2: to George Brown? Uh, yep, I was at the opening in um, Japan with him, which was kind of weird because I'm not in the movie, but the Japanese have a thing for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had me over there for the uh, opening, like which shit. was really funny because there was this scuttlebutt that George would be there. And we were, they were playing the three films and they brought some people over to the Mad next one. And there was three of them and me from Emma and I always used to say to them, of You make one of the Which they did not appreciate. Didn't see the joke somehow. I don't know why. Weird people. And we're on stage, and someone in the audience said, Did you have anything to do with the costume that you wore in the movie? And I went, Well, ac- and I just got to the word actually in this voice that I will never, ever forget When He had nothing to do with it. I did, and the costume designer. It was George. And he came in. This is what I love about it. He came in, he went along the line of people, some people he hadn't seen for 20 years, knew everybody's name, gave everybody a hug, talked to them, just, just the most amazing, and left me for last, the asshole. Um, <laughs> then he came back around, up to me, and we know each other pretty well, so I got a big hug and, hi, how are you? And my wife was sitting in the front row. And he turned around to say something, and as he turned around, he saw her. And he went, excuse me, and he handed me his mic, and he walked back along, like down off the stage, across to where she was, picked her up out of her seat, gave her this big hug and kiss, and stood talking to her for three minutes, and then walked back up on the <laughs> stage. I adore him, because the man is Steven Spielberg, and he could act like it. He doesn't. He's George Miller. He doesn't give a fuck. He's the coolest dude on the earth. I just love being around him. I love working with him. So we were there for the opening, and George said to me, we're at dinner. And he said, so what do you think? And I went, I'm eating, George. <laughs> <laughs> he just looked at me, and he went, you're not in the next one. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, he's got he's got a problem. And we talked about this. That when when they were going to do Fury Road, there was this whole big thing of where people went on the internet saying, you know, we want Wes in, in Fury Road. I knew I was never going to be in it. It didn't matter. And I was talking to George. I talked to George about two things, which is quite funny. And I said, um, he said to me, he said, you know why you weren't in the film? And I said, yes. And he said, why? And I said, because you, and I always like to say "I said, because you created this amazing character that just became a bit larger than life and too well known. And everything about me, if I open my eyes, my mouth, any fucking thing, I become Wes again. And he said, well, number one, you created. Um, And he said, yes. He said, There's no, he said, I've got to put a bag over your head. The minute you went, <coughs> people went, Wes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I agreed with him. They were making another movie. They weren't doing the remake of Vernon Wells in Wes. So I was totally in agreement with him. And um, he just couldn't do it. But he's, he's sweet and lovable. And I'm sure he'll put me in one of the next two somewhere. I'll be a dead body or something.
0: <laughs> be hanging
2: off a truck. I'll be the boy on the back of Tom's bike.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, that fucking helicopter. You know the crash scene in the film? Yeah. That happened. It wasn't part of the script. They were following the helicopter, went, yeah, and they went, oh, that looks good. (laughs) Somebody go and get, uh, what's his name, put him in the seat and we'll just take him from there. Mm. George will use anything. He's kind of fun to be with. Nice man. Any more questions? We haven't even gone to my sex life. This is amazing. Tell us
0: about your number of threesomes. Tell you what. What? Oh, how many threesomes?
2: I don't know.
1: I Let's see what happens tonight. I like
2: to say that my first wife became gay. Whether, oh, you motherfucker.
0: <laughs> now you'll fucking remember me! <laughs> I love you!
2: <laughs> I you Made it!
1: it. <laughs> I, have, I, got an interesting question. I have found them to be incredibly comfortable, and
2: did you find a wine cloth as comfortable as an costume of what? Yes, kept my ass from getting chafed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. By the way, these are tomatoes because I'm a tomato freak. <laughs> so I am. I'm tomatoes. I didn't say it. Yeah, where is he?
0: I'm over Up here. whatever. Yeah,
2: you. <laughs> hey, you fucker, come and get my tomatoes. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: and if you give them to anybody else, you're a dead person. <laughs> But, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's all fun. As they say, it's all fun until someone gets their eye poked out. Um, But I could not wish for anything better. If someone once said to me, you know, what would you do if you had it all over again? I went the same. Um, I might just start acting a little younger. Um, I did um, Mad Max when I was 33. I was a football player came off the footy field and did a stupid movie where my dick showed and, I mean, a stage play. By the way, that became a sensation, that stage play, which was really disturbing. Side story that's very funny, my mother, God rest her soul, who I adored to the day she died, still do, um, came to the opening night. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
2: With my sister, my brother, and my auntie, and sat in the middle row, dead center. My mother hates one word, or did hate one word, and that word was fuck. In this play, I said fuck at least 112 times. <laughs> Oh, I was, because I was waiting for her to yell at me. And I was terrified of going on stage, because I thought, oh my god, the minute I say fuck, she's going to stand up and go, Bad on. <laughs> So I go on stage, and of course, first thing I have to do is strip naked and masturbate. And then I, I wasn't thinking about that. I'm thinking I've got to say fuck in about three minutes. And I know what's going to happen. <laughs> so I get through the whole play. She doesn't stand up. She doesn't yell at me. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. So I get dressed, I go downstairs, and this is how brilliant parents are, by the way. My mother was the best at at what she did. I walk downstairs, they're in the bar, I walk into the bar, my mother, and everybody standing there. My mother has this gleam in her eyes because she was living her fantasy through me because she never got to be what she wanted to be because I got born. And um, I walked up to her and I said, what would you think? And she went, you were very good. And I went, thank you. And she's looking into my eyes, and then her eyes went all the way down my body to my crutch, and she went, and you have grown, haven't you,
0: sweetheart?
2: <laughs> How to destroy an actor in simple terms? So I, I take a deep breath so that I can remain calm, and I say, did anything upset you? And she went, I don't know what you mean. And I, I said, you know something i said and she went oh you mean that word and i went yeah she went well sweetie first time you said it i thought oh he knows i don't like that word (laughs) second time you said it i thought says it again there will be trouble (laughs) said by about the 50th time you said it i thought oh what the fuck? it's just a word (laughs) but mom you are the best I really, really loved her for all my life, for everything she did for me. But the end to that story was my auntie's there, Auntie Rose, and I walked over to Auntie Rose, and uh, I said, Auntie, did you enjoy it? And she went, and swear to God, this is what she did. I put my hand out to hold her, and she took my hand in her hand, and she was holding my hand very gently and looking into my eyes, and she went, you know that you will always be my favorite nephew. I, I really love you, Vernon. And I went, oh, thank you. I- no, I'm not gay. <laughs> <laughs> and she went, it's all right. I understand what you have to be in the business you're in. I'm going, Honey Rose, I am not gay. It was a stage play. And she's going. I swear to God, till the day that woman died, I was gay. (laughs) Didn't matter what woman, that's where the blondes with the big tits came in. (laughs) Didn't matter what I took home, that was just handbags. I was trying to impress everybody that I was straight. (laughs) My mother used to love it. She used to think it was the funniest thing in the world.
0: So, bringing home two big titty blondes, how did that go?
2: With my mother or my auntie, my auntie didn't give a shit because she didn't believe it. My mother would just look at me and go, "I am not changing the sheets," and I'd go, "I didn't ask." We had I had the greatest relationship with my mother all my life. Um, she backed me in everything I did. Uh, it didn't matter what it was. I could walk into my mother and say, "I'm going to be a hitman." And she'd say, how much is it going to cost for a gun, sweetheart? (laughs) She was just like that with me. It was this thing that we had all my life. And she was, when she was, when I was very, well, probably about 16, 17, I was going to clubs. And my mother was 32, 33, and stunning. I mean, absolutely stunning. And she would go with me sometimes. People would hit on her. I'd spend the night saying, get the fuck off my mother. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd be like, yeah, right. I'd be like, oh, fuck. Because she looked she used to like going out clubbing, you know, and dancing. So she'd go with me. But it was really fun. And then she, actually, she got a brain tumor and that all changed, unfortunately. But um, all my life, she was my biggest, biggest fan. And it was funny because when we were in the bands, every Mother's Day, we would record a song for her. No matter where we were, if we were touring, and some of them are the most god-awful things you've ever heard. <laughs> Sleepy boys in a, in a studio, singing out a key. Not good. She kept every one of them. And I made three <laughs> porno movies when I was young. And my mother had a copy of every one of them.
0: <laughs> are they online?
2: I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> and she would, if I was being a smart ass at home, with all my friends, she would bring them out and put it in the thing. She'd go, Oh, by the way, here's what Vernon does. And I'd go, oh, No! all my friends would be like, Shit, dude. I learned never to be a smart ass around my mother. She would just cripple me. It was so much fun. But yeah, that was soft core porn really I um, actually could could not eat strawberries and cream for about two years after one
0: Sunday, like,
2: and if they didn't smell all sort of hairy and thre- I couldn't even eat them like,
0: oh, what no judging
2: no ju- yeah no judging yes when the end comes I'm gonna destroy all those fucking patches of strawberries but, yeah, it was kind of kind of fun. I've done everything I've ever wanted to do, except for two films, which I hope somebody's actually writing one, and that is a remake of 12, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, so I can play awesome. Captain Nemo. Ooh. That's one that I really want to do. And the other one is the original uh, story of Lassat, um, and I can be the vampire. And it's really funny because someone was talking to him and he's a very good writer and he wants to do this, and it's an amazing story. He he, um, did the outline for me. And someone said to him, don't you think Vernon's a little old? And he went, no. And he was being really serious. He said, no, he said because the vampire was in his 60s. Everybody portrays him as this 20-year-old. He wasn't. He had lived a life. That's why he had so much intelligence. And that's why everything he saw became part of who he was he wasn't a kid, he was this grown man and he said no I want him to do it and I went
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and I hope to do that one too but the uh, 20,000 Leagues Undersea is the one I really yeah. playing um, him. and just for fun I'd like to be the uh, pirate in in Treasure Island Arrgh <laughs> Arrgh Billy come here boy don't <laughs> play with my parents. <laughs> wow. What? That was awesome. Auntie would approve. <laughs> 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 yeah, she'd say, I thought so. Told <laughs> you.
0: <laughs>
2: Told you I'm always right. Anybody got another question? Oh, this is becoming boring. <laughs> anyone think this was all about me? Yeah!
0: (laughs) Yeah, That's what it was supposed
2: to be. Oh, bugger. Thank you. Um, I have one little thing to say before I finish, and this is serious, and I'm not serious very often, so take it as it comes. To all of you, from my heart to your heart, I love you all, and without you I am nobody. Always remember you are somebody special, each of you, and that together, You can create and do anything you want, and you can make anybody that you like special as well. Oh, knock it off!
1: One that wants to participate and we're going to do a short film with Vernon. That we're going to, hey, play, you guys. You to up. Up? Announcements. So anyway everyone is welcome what we what we're going to need is we're going to need some town folks and we're going to need some ladies. So Can you talk um, on the mic, Wallace? They can't hear you in the back. Yeah. What he
2: said was there's a tall blonde with big tits that's coming in. To the oh, sorry. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. I got a strip here. Not my second. mom. Woo, you I know. Get <laughs> <did> your <laughs> hand out of my Alright, i got to take my thing out of my pocket. Here, take that. And the, the mic is a furry thing you got in your hand. Hello. The other furry thing.
1: John. Okay, no. Okay. there we go. Okay, so everyone in the back pay attention. Vernon has been gracious enough to join us in a short film that we're going to film tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. So 8 a.m. meet here. I'm going to need people dressed as raiders, and I'm going to need people dressed as townsfolks. So it's going to be a, a little brief story that's going to be the inception of Uranium Springs. So uh, everyone that can uh, participate, I'd love to have you out. And we'll make a, a little bit of EOD history with the amazing Burton Wells.
0: All right. We got all of you dressed in costume except her. She's hey. naked on a
2: plate. I couldn't
0: help myself. I apologize. Let's put her to a vote. <laughs> <laughs>